Good morning, and happy Mother's Day to all you mothers in the audience. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Anna Gresh, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here today and online as well this morning. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital force, voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. Probably a vital force as well as a voice. <laughs> we are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and our minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You will find the words printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now let's all stand for hymn number 347, Gather the Spirit.
please remain standing for our affirmation and doxology. The affirmation is printed in your order of service, and it begins. Love is the doctrine of our church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve humanity and fellowship, to the end that all souls shall grow in harmony with Thus do we covenant with each other in our doxology. Please be seated. Is this, is this microphone on? Can you hear me? Yeah, it's on? Okay. No, okay, I'll stand here then. So I'll tell the story for all ages this morning. I thought I'd tell the story of Lloyd George. Lloyd George was a British statesman, and this is a story that comes from his childhood. And Lloyd George was given the task and his family to round up the firewood each and every day that the family would use to keep their house warm and to do all of the cooking. And Lloyd, being a good son, saw that foul weather was approaching and so he decided he would venture out into the woods to gather as much wood as possible because he knew that a long storm was on the tail end. And so Lloyd went out to the woods that were nearby his house. And what do you know? The storm blew in. And so Lloyd is out there, just a little boy, and he's trying to gather up all this wood, and a massive storm is raging, and it's rocking all of the trees. And he's looking around at the glistening sky and the glistening grass and the trees, and they're waving, and all of a sudden, all those loose branches, you all know what happens whenever loose branches encounter fierce winds, what happens? They fall. And so he's looking all around and all the branches that are loose are crashing to the ground and he's scared for his life because it's a massive storm and all these massive branches are falling down and he knows he's going to disappoint his family because he's going to come home empty-handed and the fire is going to go cold. They might not be able to cook food that night. And so then he's in his imagination and he's wondering why whenever I come out to this place, whenever it's sunny, does it look so peaceful? He's imagining all those sunny days and he looks and the field is beautiful and green and the trees are brown and green with leaves or red with leaves. But at this moment, it's not one of those peaceful moments. It's gray and it's windy and it's crashing all around him. And he went home. And then he grew up to be a British statesman, maybe because of this encounter, I don't really know. But later he would tell a story to the gathered British assembly of people, a metaphor, if you will, for what this experience taught him in life. And if I can summarize it, the experience goes like this. Oftentimes, most of us strive to live or at least present to the world like what? Like that field in the forest with nothing wrong with it. 
We try to be that field in the forest to other people where it's just nice green pastures and our trees look good and they're all leafed out. But what we don't want to show people oftentimes are the storms that rage inside of us. We don't want to show people the way that those storms that rage without us can make our loose branches come crashing to the ground. And so what Lloyd told those people whenever they were gathered is he said this. He said, sometimes you can't get back to normal. You can't grow. You can't learn unless you live and you pay attention in the storm. And that's my lesson this morning. We're welcome to sing the children on their way as they stay in their seats. like to invite everyone now into a spirit of prayer and meditation. You hear me say this every Sunday, but I say it because I believe it. To pray or meditate properly, you have to do it with your whole body. And so if you're so inclined, put both feet on the ground. You can press them down into the ground to feel it support you. If it is your custom to meditate with your eyes closed, now would be a good time to go ahead and close them. Before we journey into silence together, take a moment to become aware of the heart in your chest, the air stirring in your lungs. If you're lucky to have come here with someone, the warmth of their body next to you. Let us pray. O oh, Spirit of hope, it's hard to see the promise of new life. We know so many places where hope is hard to find, where war and famine turn the sprouting fields to mud, where anger and despair are bold enough to mock the good news. Holy wellspring of love, we watch and pray for strength and discernment to lay down our lives for our friends one bright, faithful day at a time. Spirit of hope, we claim the promise of this spring season and dare to pray for those whose lives seem empty, whose hopeful hands are empty. Hear now our prayers for those in pain and need and for ourselves, for we would be part of future blessings. And now let us call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives. And let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please remain seated for our prayer hymn number 123.
from the grey hymnal, Spirit of Life. Freely have we received of gifts that minister to our needs of body and spirit. Gladly we bring to our church and its wide concerns a portion of this bounty. The mission and ministry of UU Wasa is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop your gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or a recurring gift with your credit or debit charge. Thank you for your support.
This morning's reading is a poem entitled, What I Learned from My Mother, by the poet Julia Kosdorf. And the poet writes, I learned from my mother how to love the living, to have plenty of vases on hand in case you have to rush to the hospital with peonies cut from the lawn, black ants still stuck to the buds. I learned to save jars large enough to hold fruit salad for a whole grieving household, to cube home canned pears and peaches, to slice through maroon grape skins and flick out the sexual seeds with a knife point. I learned to attend viewings even if I didn't know the deceased, to press the moist hands of the living to look into their eyes and offer sympathy as though I understood loss even then. I learned that whatever we say means nothing. What anyone will remember is that we came. I learned to believe that I had the power to ease awful pains materially like an angel. Like a doctor, I learned to create from another suffering my own usefulness. And once you know how to do this, you can never refuse. To every house you enter, you must offer healing. A chocolate cake you baked yourself. The blessing of your voice or just your touch. Here and ends our reading.
I'd like to start by welcoming back Jacob and Molly Roseman after more than a year away. It's wonderful to have you back. Your music is a Sunday unto itself, and it has saved my sermon more than once. I'd also like everybody to know you're on video today. So thank you for your generosity of making video possible that our congregants who worship still at home can tune in and see the backs of your heads. That's also very nice. Also want to wish everybody here of who's a mother or a mothering type, happy Mother's Day. And I also want to wish my own mother, who's going to be listening to this service later today, a happy Mother's Day, and apologize for the first 21 years of my life. But you're welcome for everything ever since then. So year after year, surveys are conducted, and they ask mothers, these surveys say, mothers, what do you most want for Mother's Day? And every single year, mothers give to the question, what do you want for Mother's Day? This answer, to be left alone. <laughs> so if later today you find yourself looking across a dinner table at your beloved mother and she has a smile upon her face, you should know that deep down, your mother wishes that you weren't there. And we all know this is true because many, if not most, moms live in constant service to others. My wife is in constant service to others. My mother is in constant service to others, especially now as a grandmother. But this morning, I thought that it'd be nice to celebrate Mother's Day by surveying the legacy of three saints in our liberal religion. I've talked about these women over the course of my years here, but this will be sort of a deep dive into their lives. And so these revolutionary women, they dedicated their lives to imagining and enacting what I call an otherwise world. And so in the face of ridicule and physical violence, they never backed down from their belief that the world can be otherwise, that the world can be freer and more just and more spiritualized and more peaceful. And these women's, their legacies endure because for us, they have become a sort of guiding light. They show us a way out of the darkness. And they prove that even though human beings are ego-driven and selfish, human beings can also be instruments of humility and peace too. So back in 1870, 151 years ago, a woman by the name of Julia Ward Howe the author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, she read the first Mother's Day proclamation. Now, the first Mother's Day proclamation, it's hard for us to remember what Mother's Day originally was because for us, Mother's Day has become a lot like a cheesy Hallmark card. It's a restaurant coupon. It's a big box store discount. But Mother's Day was originally an anti-war manifesto. And so I want to read for you some of Howe's words that she read 151 years ago when she introduced to the American people Mother's Day and its purpose. Hear her words now. Disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor nor violence vindicate possession. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now lead that may all be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. And let them first meet as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. 
and let them then solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace. Man is brother to man, each bearing after their own time the sacred impress, not of Caesar, but of God. So the first Mother's Day was an attempt to inspire people to imagine what it'd be like to live in a peaceful world. This is almost impossible for any of us to imagine because the United States has been at war for decades. Israel has been at war versus Palestine for decades. African nations, Russia and Ukraine, killing is everywhere. And make no mistake, Julia Ward Howe was well aware that there is no era in human history without record of violence and war. But for Howe, the Mother's Day proclamation, you see, it was a creative act. It's an example of what she would have referred to as a transcendent piece of art. It's a piece of art because it asks us to imagine an otherwise world. But what do I mean when I say an otherwise world? It's a world in which the wrongs are righted. It's a world where the first will be last and the least will be most. But what would it take to create a world like that? For starters, I think it takes a little bit of daring. So ancient rabbis, they believed that when Moses led the Israelites out of slavery, they arrived at the edge of the sea and they stopped. And what did they do as the story tells us? They turned and they looked back and at that point, what did they see? An entire army was approaching them. And so then they looked back out at the sea and they knew that if they tried to cross, the first to die would be the weak in their midst and the very young. But the story tells us that Moses was fed up with the status quo, and so what he decided is that he would rather risk his life in freedom than bend to the will of his oppressors. And so with one step forward, Moses walked into the Red Sea and the water parted. Now in the mind of the ancient rabbis, they didn't believe that the water parted like it does in Cecil Bill DeMille's way too long movie version of the Ten Commandments starring Charlton Heston, right? Isn't that who stars in it as Moses? Of course it is. Anyways, for the ancient rabbis, what they believed is that when the water parted, it parted just one tiny footstep at a time. And they imagine it this way because the rabbis know that at some point, all of us will feel like we have our backs against the wall. They know that all of us will face trials. People will slander our good names. People might even mock our marriages, try and sabotage our friendships. And we will do our part to complicate our own living by nature of the fact that we are human and broken and accident prone. But as my friend who is a Catholic nun likes to remind me, she says, Brian, you cannot control what life throws at you. She says, Brian, you cannot control how other people treat you. What she says, though, is this. You can choose this one thing, how you're going to respond. And so that's the point of this story, to show us that when misery and sorrow come, you have but two choices. You can give in or you can take a step forward. The ancient Israelites didn't know how everything was going to turn out. And they knew for a fact that the chances of failure outweighed the chances of success. It's a story that tries to teach us that sometimes there will be things in our lives that will chase us to the edge of hope. But if you're prayed up or meditated up, 
If you've got a decent squad of people who won't abandon you when you're down, you've got all you need to keep on going. To imagine a world without war is like standing between an advancing army and a raging sea. There will always be people ready to tell you that what has been will always be. There will always be people ready to tear you down so that they can try and reform you in their own image. And even if you take that first step, you might fail all the same. But you'll never know whether or not you're going to fail if first you don't move. And so Julia Ward Howe, in addition to being a poet and a suffragist, she was a Unitarian laywoman at the Church of the Disciples in Boston, Massachusetts. She was born way back in 1819, a time when women weren't allowed the vote. When women, time in the entire United States that would admit women. How was born in an era when people were allowed to own other human beings on account of their skin color. I think it's fair to say that Hal was born with an army at her back and a sea in front. But Hal and others like her didn't wait for the army to catch up, and she didn't let fear or ridicule stop her either. She took that first step, and the sea parted. But Hal wasn't born with courage and bravery. In fact, once in her journal, she commented, and I quote, during the first two-thirds of my life, I look to the masculine ideal of character as the only true one. But in the final third of her life, she discovered for herself the true measure of a woman's character, which in her own words was, and I quote, like the addition of a new continent to the map of the world. At a time when women weren't allowed to pastor churches, she would preach women's equality from pulpits throughout the nation. She became an advocate for women's suffrage, the abolition of slavery, and would found organizations that helped advance women's roles in society and culture. And let's not forget the fact that she fundamentally altered Unitarianism in America, and her impacts still live with us today. If you've ever heard of a thing called transcendentalism, it's because of people like her and Ralph Emerson and Henry Thoreau. And when a reporter asked how what life was for, she responded with this quote. She said, life is to learn, to teach, to serve, and to enjoy. And so at Howe's funeral in 1910, 10 years before women were granted the right to vote, just imagine this. Thousands upon thousands of mourners forced the ceremony to be moved from her church to the Boston Symphony Hall. And more than 4,000 people flooded inside and hundreds more were left out in the streets. And at one point in the middle of the service, those thousands of mourners broke into the middle of the ceremony and they started singing Battle Hymn of the Republic. And just like Moses, Hal never made it to the promised land. She never cast a vote. But she never stopped putting one foot in front of the other, risking what is for what might be. She never stopped imagining an otherwise world. One of Howe's fellow suffragists would not only champion freedom and equality for women in America, she would permanently alter the American religious landscape. Olympia Brown is her name, and she was born in 1835, in the midst of an era when only men were ordained and allowed in the pulpit. 
And so as a college student in the 1850s, Brown stumbled upon another traveling preacher by the name of Antoniette Brown. And Olympia Brown heard her lecture. And she later wrote in her journal, and I quote, it was the first time I heard a woman preach and the sense of victory lifted me up. And so after college, Olympia Brown, she applied to Meadville Seminary, the Unitarian Seminary up in Chicago, but she was declined admission on account of her sex. And so then Olympia Brown sent a letter of application to the Universalist Seminary, this time at St. Lawrence University, way up in Canton, New York, and she was denied entry again. But this time, Olympia Brown did something bold. She petitioned personally the college president, who reluctantly admitted her, promising her in his acceptance letter this. He said, Olympia, I will admit you to the seminary, but you need to understand this fact. Your admission will do absolutely nothing to change the fact that women have no rightful place in the church. My guess is Olympia Brown said you want to make a bet. So when Brown graduated from seminary in 1863, she was called to serve as minister to the Universalist Church in Weymouth, Massachusetts. And at her service of ordination and installation, that very same naysaying president of St. Lawrence, the same one who told her that women had no rightful place in church, he traveled along with his wife to take part in the service that would ordain the first woman in the United States. Brown would later go on to serve churches in Connecticut and Racine, Wisconsin, before she left parish work to be a traveling evangelist, and she preached God's universal love and salvation while spreading the gospel of women's equality and the abolition of slavery throughout the United States. In an era when women were forced to fight from the margins of society, when they suffered oppression and ridicule, when they stood as if there was an army at their backs and a sea in front of them, women like Howe and Brown and dozens more fought from behind the pulpit and beyond. And in so doing, they extended the boundaries of freedom to include women and African Americans and the poor. These women refused, they refused to give in to the bickering that continues to plague Unitarian Universalism and its churches today. You all might be surprised to know that we do a lot of bickering here in this church. All those questions, whether or not we're theists or atheists, whether or not we're humanists or Christians, all those questions about how much authority Boston should have. What they did is they set that squabbling aside and instead they found common cause in service of benevolent religion. They took the very best of what our religion has to offer, which is a theology of love and acceptance, and they evangelized everywhere they could go. They did this because they knew that at our best, whenever we set aside childish things, we are not only capable of imagining an otherwise world, we are able to inspire others to take that next step towards personal and collective freedom. And near the end of Olympia Brown's life, when she was 80 years old, she got very angry at then-President Woodrow Wilson's two frequent speeches against women's equality. And so in response, the elderly Brown, she traveled up to Washington, D.C., and in her knapsack, the only thing she brought was a huge stack of President Woodrow Wilson's speeches. 
Olympia Brown slowly made her way out onto the lawn in front of the White House, and she reached into her knapsack, and she pulled out all of President Woodrow Wilson's speeches, and she put them on the ground, and then she lit them on fire. At 80 years old, Olympia Brown never tired of speaking truth to power, even if it landed her in jail. And so in 1868, at a time when there were still very few women in ministry, a woman minister by the name of Phoebe Hannaford, she asked Olympia Brown to come and preach at her service of ordination. And so using a tradition that dates back to the very first ordinations ever performed, Brown took her soon-to-be colleague by the hand, and she looked into the eyes of her soon-to-be colleague, and she said this, and I quote, she said, my dear friend, you are welcome to the work. You're welcome to the labors. You're welcome to the triumphs. Welcome to the sacrifices. You are welcome to the rewards and the joys that come from the consciousness of doing good. Brown closed her prayer by wishing upon Unitarians and Universalists everywhere that they may see the fruits of your work blossoming here about you like sweet spring flowers carrying joy in your heart and to the heart of every beholder. Brown dared to dream of an otherwise world. She could have stopped when Meadville denied her entry. She could have stopped when St. Lawrence University denied her entry. She could have stopped when she was beaten for preaching in a pulpit. She could have stopped whenever she was arrested at 80 years old. But she didn't. And so by the time Brown died in 1926, get this, she had founded the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and she paved the way for dozens of women in ministry. And at the 100th anniversary of Brown's ordination, St. Lawrence University, that same one that had first refused, refused her admission, honored her with a plaque on campus, and it says this, Preacher of Universalism pioneer and champion of women's citizenship, forerunner of this new era. Here's a stat for you. Today, 60% of Unitarian Universalist clergy are women. I lift up this statistic because in a nation on fire with paranoia and addiction and mass shootings, it's tempting to lose hope. But this church and the people who make it so are living proof of hope in a too often hopeless world. And if I had to bet on who will pull us out of this mess, I would put my money on people like you. But mostly, I put my money on women. Women like Brown and Howe, like the women who helped found this very church. People brave enough to imagine an otherwise world brave enough to stand with an army at their back and a sea before them, and despite the risks, take a step forward. Here's our last story. It begins in 1894. Caroline Bartlett Crane, a Unitarian minister and suffragist, she went and addressed the World Parliament of Religions about the status of women. And in her speech, she lamented that women were secondary citizens in religions that claim to stand for justice and equality. And so in her speech, she shreds the idea that women are too emotional to be religious leaders. And she reminded that panel of men that they are composed of the very same physical and spiritual substance as women. 
And throughout the speech, she's pleaded for everyone to partner with religious women everywhere to establish a truly equal status for women in Christianity and Judaism and Unitarianism and Universalism and beyond. And she closed her speech with these powerful questions. She said, shall man execute this long-delayed injustice? Or shall it be that women must at last sadly assert her own discredited divine prerogative, take up the crown of humanhood, and crown herself? And so in closing on this holiday that was intended to serve as a reminder of the possibility that humankind isn't just capable of war, that we're capable of peace and justice and joy too, let us ask ourselves this hour if we are willing to take up the crown of humanhood. Will we name ourselves kings and queens of all that is just and true, or will we wait for the armies to mow us down? I encourage you to let learn from these women. Learn from these women who took that first step. Let us have faith that sometimes the waters will part and that the world could be otherwise. Amen, and happy Mother's Day. Welcome to Rise Now in Body or Spirit and sing our closing hymn, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah.
If you came with someone, you're welcome to take their hand now for our benediction or not. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies, may the love that cast out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude, and I'll see you as you make your way out.